Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever digital listening device you happen to have in your possession. And here is an amazing deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some classics of American literature like The 42nd Parallel by John Dos Passos or Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison or As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the free audiobook, it helps the program. I get a few dollars. It's a nice thing to do. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the voice in your head. This is your internal dialogue. Thank you very much for being here. I'm very excited about today's show. My guest is Cheryl Strayed. She's the author of the critically acclaimed novel Torch. And now she is the author of a new memoir called Wild, which is due out from Knopf in March and is generating an incredible amount of buzz. Uh, And last but not least, she is Sugar. She has just had her coming out party as the popular advice columnist over at the Rumpus which uh, has caused a stir in the online literary community with coverage in newspapers and magazines, including The New Yorker Online. So Cheryl and I are going to be talking about all of that stuff in just a moment. But before I get there, I want to ponder some things. Uh, and specifically, I want to talk about Cheryl's new book and the fact that it tells the story of how she hiked the Pacific Crest Trail uh, in 1995. I believe it was 95. And uh, we have a lot in common, and you're going to hear me talk about this with her. Uh, but reading this book for me... Uh, It's almost freakish how similar our experiences were. Uh, Cheryl hiked the PCT in 1995, and then uh, I went out on the Appalachian Trail in 97 with uh, my dog Merlin, my late border collie. 
And uh, we both hiked an identical distance. Uh, we, we both did 1,100 miles, and we hiked for an identical period of time uh, for three months. And uh, I think we did it for similar reasons, too, in a roundabout sort of way. So it's particularly exciting for me to get to talk to her about this and to talk to someone else who was crazy enough uh, to attempt some serious long-distance trekking over mountains and over the earth and, uh, you know, it brings a lot of things to mind. It makes me think about uh, a lot of different things. It makes me think about perspective, and it makes me think about, uh, you know, things like boredom. And, you know, for, by perspective, I mean, you know, reading the book, it reminds me of that time in my life, and it reminds me of being in the wilderness alone and how spending, an, you know, any extended period of time uh, outdoors on your own it makes you appreciate uh, the littlest things. You know, you hike several hundred miles over mountainous terrain, and along the way, uh, you will have fantasies about things like pizza uh, and cheeseburgers that are borderline sexual. You know, it, it, reminds you, uh, it reminds me of just how hungry you get when you're out there and how you can't get enough food, you cannot consume enough calories uh, to match how many you're burning, and how when you're back among civilization, uh, how easy it is to take this sort of thing for granted. Just simple access to food. So, uh, you know, other things that you appreciate, you, pre you know, I found myself appreciating a hot shower. Uh, you appreciate a toilet. You know, you live outside for three months, and, and all of a sudden a toilet takes on the grandeur of, like, a microchip or, or an artificial heart or something. It becomes this spectacular invention, like kind of like a miracle of technology. And, you know, when I talk about this, uh, people will often ask me uh, if I was ever scared. That's a common question. And uh, I always respond by saying, you know, uh, yes, I was, <laughs> I was terrified much of the time. Uh, it, was very, it was a very emotional experience. And uh, much like Cheryl, I had almost zero camping experience when I made the decision to try it. Uh, so I had to learn everything out, you know, on the fly, uh, out in the wild. And I remember one particular night when it comes to uh, fear. I remember one particular night where I was in my tent in the Shenandoah wilderness of Virginia, and it was dark, and I was alone. Uh, and here I should mention that all throughout the park, you know, when I was there, there had been signs posted by law enforcement, and they were looking for a murderer. He had killed two women in the park uh, a few years earlier. He had shot them. And uh, this was not the greatest of news. Uh, but, you know, like, what was I going to do? Uh, you know, I, I had to keep walking. And uh, frankly, I felt like the odds, you know, mathematically speaking, at least were in my favor. So uh, I'm in my tent. I'm with Merlin, uh, my dog, and uh, I'm sleeping. And uh, it's, you know, it's dark outside. And all of a sudden, uh, Merlin starts growling, but, you know, very quietly. And so it wakes me up. And uh, I just sort of lie there and I listen. And uh, just like in a fucking movie, I hear a twig snap in the distance. And then I hear like another twig snap. And then, uh, you know, the sound gets closer and I realize that these are footsteps and I hear the footsteps drawing closer to my tent. And then the footsteps are right out in front of my tent. And then someone is unzipping my tent. And so by now I've got my headlamp on and I'm sitting up and my heart is like thundering in my chest and I've got uh, my little knife in one hand, you know, it has like a three inch blade. It's just this little knife. And I've got Merlin by the collar, and then this hippie guy uh, who's unzipping my tent. He's got this big, bushy, hippie beard, and he's soaking wet. Uh, I guess it had rained or something. He sticks his head in my tent, 
and or maybe he had I don't know what it was. I just remember beads of water on this guy's beard. Maybe he had dunked him, you know, dunked his head somewhere. But he sticks his head in my tent and he screams bloody murder. And he starts like shaking his head like a crazy person. And so I'm holding on to Merlin who's barking by now and I've got this knife and I'm ready to stab this guy in the carotid artery. But, you know, it, almost as you know, almost as soon as he started screaming and shaking his head, he started apologizing once he saw my face and my dog and he pulls his head out of the tent and he starts telling me how sorry he is, uh, you know, how incredibly sorry and, uh, how he thought I was someone else. And this is all a big mistake. So it turned out that he thought I was his friends. Uh, he, you know, he was also drunk and he was with two other people hiking. This was a young guy. He was with another guy and a girl and they had hiked off the trail earlier in the day. Uh, you know, off into the park to some sort of restaurant where they had gotten drunk to celebrate one of their birthdays. And uh, then they had somehow procured a box of wine. And so this hippie guy mistakenly thought that I was his friends and that they had somehow beaten him to camp. And it turned out that they were actually behind him. So they showed up a few minutes later with this box of wine and we all wound up getting really drunk and we smoked a joint and it was like a, re a really fun experience. It wound up becoming one of my favorite nights on the trail. And so the point of this, I guess, you know, it goes back to perspective, if that's where I started. You know, I, in a matter of minutes, I went from thinking that I was going to, you know, going to be in a desperate fight for my life. And I was in a physical state of fear that was probably as intense as anything I'd ever gone through, adrenaline-wise and otherwise. And then, you know, within 10 minutes, I was at a party in nature with hippies. Which, uh, in hindsight, is actually a really good juxtaposition. If you ever think that you're about to get murdered you know, like seriously murdered. And then it turns out that you're not about to get murdered. It's really fun to get drunk afterwards. That's what I learned. I was very happy to be alive and I was very happy to not be alone in those woods. So perspective, that's perspective. And then boredom, uh, as the other point, it's also very boring in some ways to be alone in nature. And by boring, I think I mean tedious or monotonous or something. I'm speaking about the psychological aspects of it. You know, you are alone with only your brain uh, to entertain you, aside from the wilderness, of course, but it's a very internal experience, as much as you think it would be this exterior thing, you know, this external thing, you know. Your brain will attempt to entertain you relentlessly and with mixed results when you're out in the wilderness alone. And uh, I used to say that when I was out there, I had every single thought that I could possibly have. It was like I went through every single memory in my head and played every head game that I could possibly play and sang every favorite song. It was like being in prison or something, like the the prison of nature or the prison of your own mind. Uh, or it was kind of like being grounded, how I used to feel as a kid when I would get grounded and I would be sitting in my room wondering what I was going to do, you know? How am I going to entertain myself? What's next? And, uh... This then reminds me of my, of my friend Patrick, uh, speaking of being grounded. Uh, this is a guy I grew up with who, as a child, was almost constantly grounded, particularly in adolescence, you know, like junior high and high school. And, I, you know, we, we, we lived in suburban Indianapolis, and Patrick's parents, uh, they, they grounded him more than anybody I knew. And I can remember in junior high riding my bike over to his house to see if he wanted to do something, and uh, this was common. He would be standing at his bedroom window on the second floor of his army green house. It was army green. And he would have a fishing pole 
and he would be throwing stuffed animals out into his front lawn and then entertaining himself by casting his fishing pole and trying to hook the stuffed animals and then reel them in into his window, which is kind of brilliant. Uh, and I guess that's kind of uh, to my point when it comes to boredom and then specifically when it comes to boredom in nature. You know, you learn to entertain yourself with what's around. And uh, I feel like I learned uh, to appreciate my surroundings more and better and to find ways to improvise when it came to entertainment. You know, even if that just meant sitting on some mountainside uh, and throwing rocks into the void. So anyway, I could go on, uh, but I'm not. Uh, Those are just some thoughts on fear and boredom from my summer in the wild, uh, my weird summer in the wilderness of Appalachia. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Let us now turn to Cheryl Strayed and hear some of her stories from her time out in the wild, in the desert, in the woods, in the hills of the Pacific Crest Trail. I feel like I got married this week. You know, it really, I really do. But you know, Tuesday night was so unbelievable. It was just this huge, I mean, the, the only thing I can compare it to is my wedding. You know, there were all these people. I mean, granted, I didn't know most of the people in the room um, as opposed to my wedding. But, you know, just all this feeling of such love and excitement and support. And, and you know, we did our thing on the stage. But then afterwards, there was this huge reception line. People just lined up to talk to me. And I hugged every single one of them. And they brought me gifts and cards and Somebody gave me a jar of homemade peanut butter and jelly, and and people hugged me and told me stories about, you know, how they why they loved sugar, why they loved the column, or what particular column had changed their life, and so it was a really pretty amazing experience. I I could not um, sleep the whole night because I was so wound up from from just the love. And then when I woke up in the morning, there was so many things online, so many stories, and so yeah, it was. I mean, I knew there were going to be some stories. People had interviewed me. But I, I didn't, I, I couldn't have prepared myself, you know, for the response. And, and so that was really surprising. And, you know, like, since Tuesday night, I've received something like 6,000 new emails, literally 6,000 new emails. And so it's just been like this firestorm of a week. 6,000 really. emails? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> have you gone through them? You can't go through I'm, them. I'm trying, I'm trying to go through them and answer, yeah. But, I mean, I can't answer them all. It, it's just... 
and it's friends and acquaintances and everyone I ever knew. And then a lot of, you know, sugar fans who, um, you know, wanted to, to write to me to congratulate me on coming out and such. So it's really this amazing outpouring, very, very, very overwhelming. And I feel so grateful for it. You know, I mean, as I've said this over and over, but you know, I always did, I always knew I would reveal my identity and, you know, even from the start, I, I really almost started writing the column, not, not anonymously. I, it was just really something I thought, well, I'll just try anonymous, you know? So, um, and I picked this date more than a year ago. I knew that, uh, that, that there would be a point that I wanted to come out and I thought Valentine's day would be a really cool day to do it. It seems like sugar would come out on Valentine's day. And so then the column just, you know, I mean, it just builds and builds. And, and, and so as the state drew near, it just felt like, you know, and then it also happened, you know, that my book Wilds is coming out next month. And so it's, it's felt like these two trains are running down these separate tracks and suddenly they're both very close and very loud. Well, and it's also, I mean, you know, uh, it, it's also kind of great for the book. Uh, I mean, you know, just, I mean, and I'm sure you probably didn't anticipate all the attention that, that it was going to generate, but it can't hurt, right? No, and it's so fascinating because, you know, my, first of all, my my Knopf, you know, and my publicist, they've done such a great job um, with Wild and really getting it into the hands of booksellers. And so there's all this buzz and excitement around Wild, that, that just all this wonderful stuff happening about Wild. And, um, and, you know, when I told them about Sugar, what's funny is about the publishing industry, you know, I kept saying to them, well, you know, I'm doing this other thing and... Um, it's called Dear Sugar, and you know I didn't even mention it to them until about a year, you know, after, into the column. Like I, I um, just it was this thing I did on the side, you know. And so then I started to tell them about it and trying to and tried to explain this whole sugar uh, phenomenon, you know. And and I don't think that they really understood. And and in fact, you know, the publicists, you know, I, they've been asked by a couple of reporters, you know, like, well, how did how did the sugar stuff? Um, you know, fit into your promotion and publicity plans and marketing plans for a while. And they would always say it didn't. And they're telling the truth. They should take credit. They should take credit. I know. (laughs) I know. And what's, I know, isn't that crazy? But what's so funny to me is they they really have, you know, um, sort of steered clear, you know, and I think what happened, you know, as when all this stuff happened, they were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is a really, um, you know, Sugar has her own fans, you know. So, so it's it is um, a funny happening that it's all happening at once. But, but you know, Wild is being marketed, you know, sort of in its own right, you know. And then the, the Sugar audience will will come to it, and maybe some of the Wild audience will come to Sugar. We'll see. Well, but, yeah, I mean, it's just it's happy timing, and it seems like because like I remember I you know I was looking at it and I was like, if this was planned, like this is genius, you know. But I know. Um, I know. Well, that's what it is. I feel like we, you're right. We should, we should claim it because people, you know, people. I think do think that it was this big plan, and that's what's so funny. I mean, really, the rumpus, uh, probably. I'm sure. I mean, I don't. I guess I shouldn't assume, but the nervous breakdown might be the same way. You know, it's this. From the outside, it looks like it's this incredibly, um, you know, like this incredibly sort of organized thing that we all know exactly what's happening all the time. And, you know, I mean, Isaac Fitzgerald, you know, the managing editor of the Rumpus, he probably does know everything that's happening all the time. But really, you know, like the whole Dear Sugar thing, it's just me in my room writing this thing, you know, and I'm not paid for it. It's that it's just like this thing that I kind of do. And, and there was never any um, big plan, you know, it just, 
it, it just, I wrote it and, and then it happened. And, and a year ago I said, well, why don't I come out next year on Valentine's day? And, and it wasn't a big, um, you know, there weren't a lot of minds in the room sitting around the table, figuring out how best to capitalize on it. Hmm. That's so interesting. And then as far as like writing an advice column goes, like when you started this, you know, uh, how did you approach it for like from a qualification standpoint? Did you have any questions about yourself or did you think to yourself like, you know, who am I to give advice or anything like that? Or were you just like, well, I'll, I'll give it a shot and do my best. Oh, no, I completely uh, questioned. I mean, I'm not qualified. <laughs> I'm not qualified to give advice really. And then, but then that led to the deeper question um, you know, who is qualified to give advice? I mean, who do most of us get advice from? And uh, the answer is, you know, the people who who we trust and who love us and, and who are going to um, be able to kind of take our situation um, to heart and, and, and give us back, you know, advice that, that would be not what they want, but what's best for us, you know? And I, that's why so many of us, you know, go to our partners or our mothers or our friends or whatnot. Um, and, you know, so as Sugar, I guess... I tried to to do that and then bring in the uh the additional benefit of being someone who doesn't have a stake uh in the in the relationship. You know, like if a friend asks me for advice, I'll try to give my honest advice, but I also try to be gentle and I try to, you know, I don't want to alienate the person or make the person think I hate their boyfriend or whatever that, you know, that that goes on when you actually have a personal relationship uh, with the person you're advising. As sugar, I get to stand back and really tell you what I think based on what you told me in your letter. And if the letter writer is mad at me or hurt or offended or whatnot, they're, you know, I'm sorry about that, but it doesn't um, have any, you know, personal fallout. And so I think that there's, it is a wonderful sort of model. And once I got over the idea um, that really I needed to maybe be a therapist or something, um, which I think, you know, there are many times, honestly, there's there are questions that I do feel like, okay, I can't really answer this because it's it's out of my range, you know. If 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 it's something that I really think would be better handled by a psychiatrist or psychologist, I'll either not answer the question or a big part of my answer will be I really think you need to consult a doctor about this, you know, or a therapist. Um because you know there there are different kinds of of advice. There's the sort of life advice and then there's the, you know, when you're dealing with somebody who maybe has deeper issues or a mental illness. And I do try to steer clear of that in my column, for sure. Well, and then what about going personal? Like, you know, because it, it is a form. Like, the advice column is its own form, and, you know, you've seen it uh, countless places, and it's been done for right. years and years and years. And, um, you know, maybe something that distinguishes your approach to it is the fact that you are willing to get uh, more deeply personal about your own experience in the column. Like, was that something you were conscious of, or is it something you hadn't seen before that you felt like, uh, you know, people could benefit from? Yeah, that I think that my impulse to do that, I mean, I, I sort of slowly stepped into that and, and, and readers really responded so positively that I, that I trusted that process more and more, that, that um, decision more and more. I think that what I was doing is I was giving you the best thing I had to offer, you know, the, the best. When, I, when I, I really, books have changed my life and stories have informed me and they've been my greatest consolation in my in my own struggles. And so I just believe in story. And I do think that a lot of times the problems we have in our lives have to do with the way we've told ourselves the story of ourselves. So, you know, if you're locked into thinking, um, you know, a particular relationship is, 
is miserable and it sucks and here's all this stuff wrong with it. You know, in a lot of ways, when in order, if you if you do if you do want to kind of overcome that as a couple, you do have to rescript how it is you've cast you know your relationship or or how it is you've you've framed each other. And so, in some ways, I really presented stories from my own life as a way of, um, I guess, going going to a deeper place with the problem and. And and showing uh, instead of it's it's that old thing in writing you know show don't tell and in some ways storytelling allows you to do that to animate and inhabit the the complexity of the emotions um, this the, uh, the, the the sort of exploration of what's at stake and what's possible um, and you know so storytelling that kind of narrative storytelling was was the best thing I had on hand you know and I think that people. I mean, I know we love story. I mean, that's why we, you know, watch TV and read books and, you know, I mean, we're all addicted to story. And so I feel like too, that that's a compelling way to give advice instead of that lecture mode. Well, yeah, it's, you know, do this. Yeah. And if if you get like really personal, um, it it can seem sort of counterintuitive, but it actually has a more universal appeal. Like, you know, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it's not, and that's it too. I always, when, when people criticize memoir writing and say, oh, you have to be a narcissist to write memoir. I always feel like, no, you're, you're actually misunderstanding the form of memoir. And yes, there are some memoirists who probably, you know, are narcissists and who, who write out of that impulse, but great memoir is the universal story about the self, you know, and you, you use the self to tell a universal story. And I, I try, you know, I, I always tried to do that in the sugar calm. When I, whenever I told a story about myself, it wasn't because I wanted to tell you about myself. It was that I really thought that this would be um, a way into the letter writer's um, quandary, you know? So I don't know. You know, I think that sometimes I absolutely felt um, that that was scary for me to do at times because a lot of times I question that, like, do people really want to read about this thing about, you know, experience I had? And, and, um, it, and I really, too, I followed the readers, you know, I went, I trusted in the, the feedback they gave me, the kinds of columns they loved the most. Um, I felt encouraged and heartened to, to try those, you know, more. So it was just funny. I mean, when you publish a book, you know, you do get reader feedback, but you know, what you've produced is, is this, dead thing in some ways like there's nothing more you can do to the book regardless of what people say or think about it whereas the column was is this a live thing um it's always changing and evolving and i do listen to uh reader responses well and so um, what's the plan going forward like do you have now that you're out of the closet per se like do you have an idea of how it's going to continue or if it's going to continue yeah it is going to continue and what's funny to me is i mean i don't experience um I, I like I'm going to write a column that will go up next week on the site, and I'm not going to write it any differently than I wrote last week's column. I mean, I feel exactly the same. I feel, I mean, I feel different in that people know that who that I'm sugar, but when I sit down to write it, like every all of the parameters in the column that have existed so far are going to be in place. I'm not going to mention my name. I'm going to call my husband Mr. Sugar. I'm going to call my kids the Baby Sugars. I'm not going to say I live in Portland or I grew up in Minnesota. I'm I'm, I'm going to keep a sort of um, sort of general and mysterious language around the specifics of my life. 
Um, but I'm also going to continue to reveal, reveal the real things about my life in the, in the course of answering readers' questions. Um, so it's going to be the same in that way. Like, I'm not going to write it any, not one hair differently. And I'm going to keep writing it. Um, it used to be a weekly column, and I took it down to every other week because it was just too much, you know. Like, I mean, I'm, it's a lot. It's just, huge amount of work and especially the way I write the column you know if I were just knocking off like a few paragraphs you know in, in reply I could do it you know a few times a week but it, it, in some ways it's like I set the terms of the column where I wrote these big long intense personal essays you know and um then readers expect that you know <laughs> it's like I can't do it every week right. I'll, I'll you know so I'm going to keep doing it and it's going to be kind of crazy because I have a really busy few months coming up there's Wild coming out in March, and then there is a sugar book um, coming out in July called Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a selection of the columns as well as some new material. So wow. there's a lot going on. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So let's. we need to talk Wild. Wild. Uh, yes. Which is, why don't you tell uh, my listeners uh, a bit about the book? It's a memoir, and like, just, just give us like a, a broad overview of what the story is about so that we have context. Okay. So Wild is a memoir set in the summer of 1995 when I was 26 years old and I decided to hike a big chunk of the Pacific Crest Trail which is this national scenic trail that goes uh, from Mexico to Canada through California, Oregon and Washington. Um, the trail winds along the, the crest um, so it's along the Sierra Nevada mountain range and the Cascade range and I, the, the book is really a chronicle of that hike um, of the, you know, like 95-day solo journey I went on. I hiked the trail by myself, as well as everything that brought me out to the trail, which was a, a lot of uh, really difficult things. My mom had died uh, four years began, before I began hiking the trail when I was 22 and she was 45. She died really suddenly of cancer. And she was really, um, you know, my only parent and a really important person in my life. And um, after she died, my life sort of started over, and life as I knew it ended, and everything fell apart. I was married at the time, and I, you know, just in my grief, I, I really kind of dismantled um, all the good things in my life, and then and other good things were dismantled for me. And so I'd, I'd gotten involved with, um, you know, heroin and uh, lots of promiscuous sex with, with various people, and I was sort of spinning out of control, and, and also just being in my early 20s, you know, and, and really searching for, um, you know, the, 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 the play home, or searching for the person I was going to become, and, and really having, like, no anchor. I was really very much an orphan in the world. So I decided to, uh, to save myself. I, I decided that I needed to do something to get my to gather myself back to the person I knew I really had to be, and I had never gone back back backpacking before, but I'd grown up in the wilderness of northern Minnesota, and so in some ways the wilderness felt like a home to me. And I decided to just really on kind of a fluke um, hike this trail, and I did, and it was very very difficult physically, and very uh, rewarding spiritually and emotionally, and so it's really my, my husband says it's kind of like. Um, you know, William S. Burroughs' uh, junkie meets Robinson Crusoe. You know, Wild is both, <laughs> <laughs> both a wilderness tale and the really inward journey. And I go there. Um, have you read the book? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm almost done with it. And, like, this uh -huh. is, like I, I haven't told you this yet, but this is where I've got to tell you that, like, we had, like, almost parallel experiences in a way that, like, freaks me out. Uh, really? I've been reading How this. So? Well, in 1997, I hiked 1,100 miles on the Appalachian Trail over three months. 
Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I mean like the same distance, the same amount of time, the opposite. Right, I right. had my dog with me, so I had to do the AT. Uh, uh-huh. I couldn't do, I wanted to do the Pacific Crest Trail, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't as easy with the dog. So yeah, uh, that's hard for the dog. Yeah. Brad, but, that's amazing. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like, it's beyond freaky. So I've been like tearing through this book, um, because it's also, sa- it satisfied my curiosity about the PCT as well, but it was like, I mean, we we just had almost identical experiences. I had never been backpacking before. I'm a kid from the Indiana suburbs or, and was born in Milwaukee. And um, wow. I was reeling, like I had a, a close friend of mine uh, commit suicide in college. So that was sort of what launched me, I guess, you know, if I had to look back and uh, I know you speak about like the loss of your mother is like the, you know, the Genesis, you know, Genesis experience of your life. Right. Or, you know, it was similar. I mean, it's just a lot of, of kind of like crazy parallels. So Wow. Yeah. So I can relate to this experience like very well. And, uh, and I'm also, it also made me like extremely nostalgic for it. Uh, I know. Even though it was so difficult and like, that's something that I find so funny about it is that when I was going through it, uh, you know, there's no way I don't think, uh, to prepare yourself for doing something like this other than to do it. Correct. I mean, you, you you can train all you want, like, but until you're out there with like, 50 pounds on your back and you're hiking over mountains 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just, there's nothing else to do except that in order to get yourself ready for it. So you kind of, Absolutely. it's got to yeah. be trial by fire. And so, uh, one obvious place to start, uh, and I'd love to hear you talk about your experience of this is that I think when I went into it, uh, I went into it and I, you know, I, to be honest with you, I don't know if I had a clear, like a really clear idea of why I was doing it. Uh, I just felt like I should. <laughs> and I, mm-hmm. I think I think I also wanted to avoid the world after college. Like I went from graduating college and then two weeks later I was in the North Georgia wilderness by myself with my dog in a tent. So it was like, you know, I went from a keg party to that, <laughs> <laughs> which was a little jarring. Uh, but it was like, I think I went out there expecting it to be this big external experience of the wilderness, which it certainly was. But what I underestimated in a major way is just how uh, intense the in- interior experience is when you're out in the wilderness. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's yeah. it's in- it's extremely involved. And you know, how did you deal with all that? Like, what was your mind like on the you know day to day experience of hiking that trail? Well, it's funny. I mean, and maybe maybe in some ways. In that, the way you just described that, and, and maybe in some ways we we had opposite expectations. Because when I went out there, I thought, okay, you know, um, I'm going out here because I'm going to have this emotional journey, you know. And I m- imagine myself like, you know, sitting in beautiful places, weeping as the sunset, and just feeling spiritually, <laughs> you know, right. fulfilled or whatever. And I get out there, and I realize I don't even have time, to, you know, at least especially the first few weeks even like think about like whatever little problems or quibbles I have back home you know it was like holy shit you know I've got to get to a water source or I'm gonna die and I'm in the desert and I'm you know and I've got to walk up this mountain and I thought it would take me you know two hours to go five miles and it took me five hours to go five miles and you know and all of these uh, you know my my feet are hurt more than I imagined they could you know or things like that so it's like I was in the physical I was pushed into the external physical realm in a way that um, I had been so focused, um, you know, on, on the kind of internal emotional um, suffering that I'd been experience, be- experiencing before I went out there. 
Um, and that's not to say, I mean, but you're right. I mean, so the whole thing was this mental, I mean, it was both physical, physical, but incredibly mental because one thing that you never really hear about, you know, backpacking and long distance hiking is just how fucking monotonous it is and tedious. And you're just doing the same thing day after day after day. And your mind, um, does things, you know, like, you know, I was just thinking about things I'd never thought about. And I was singing songs to myself and, you know, all those things. Did you have that experience too? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, literally there's nothing like, there's no detail like that, that you mentioned in the book that I didn't also, I think it's like, I think it's just universal among people who are doing long through hikes. It's just what happens. Like I felt like I went through every memory in my head. I felt like I relived third grade. I felt like I sang every favorite song out loud (laughs) Like really loud because I knew how alone I was. You know what I'm saying? It was like, okay, so I can do this, you know? And you'd you'd kind of find yourself singing or, you know, doing any number of things to kind of keep yourself occupied. Um, And I had a dog with me, which I guess, you know, made me like a a bit less alone. But of course he couldn't talk. So, but there was lots of talking to him. (laughs) Right, I bet. And I I think, I mean, I know, I I think that... um, I mean, I ached for all kind, like any kind of companionship. I mean, I write about in Wild. I sort of turned, like my backpack, I named my backpack Monster. I mean, it became like, I sort of made it an animate object just so I had a companion out there. Yeah, but, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like Tom Hanks in that movie where he names the volleyball. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> what, what movie is that? It's uh, Castaway. You know, it's funny because I haven't seen that movie. I've got to see it because several people have said, oh, it's like Castaway. <laughs> yeah, no, he names his volleyball, uh, I think it's Wilson, and like talks to it while he's like on this, you know, uh, tropical island by himself. Uh, but, you know, Brad, this is so so interesting to me that you, you said this. Um, and even just your use of the word, it kind of made my stomach go, oh, as you said, you said reading the book, you felt nostalgic. And I know exactly what you mean. And and this, my a couple of my fellow hikers who I write about in the book have read Wild Now, and they say the same thing. And what's interesting about it is in the experience, I remember, you know, being glad to be out there, but also being like, okay, I'll be really glad when I reach my destination yes. and I'm back. You know, yes. you know. But now you go, wow, that was amazing living. You know, that was something that I mean, and and, and you and I long for it too. I long for that feeling. There was such. It was so simple. Like you carried everything you needed on your back. You knew you had where you had to go that day mm. and what you had to do to get there. And all kinds of adventures ensued. But there was this wonderful, um, just simple intensity that I, I really am very nostalgic for. Well, and then just the, the, the strength, the physical strength that you develop um, by doing it. And then also just the, you know, the vitality of youth. Like I was young when I did it. You were young when you, I mean, you almost yeah. kind of have to be. Though I, There are people out there who through hike in their fifties and sixties, it does happen. But, uh, you know, I mean, I dropped, I, I didn't have much weight to lose, but I think I dropped like 15 or 20 pounds and I could hike by the time I was done. Like, and you described this as well in the yeah. book, like after you've been carrying a 50 pound pack on yeah. your back, uh, from, you know, days on end, you know, when you finally take that thing off, like you can essentially run over mountains. It's like you're, <laughs> it's like you're I know. dancing. Like I remember that feeling so well. So, I mean, you just get into such terrific uh, physical condition and there's a freedom to it, you know, uh, that it's, it's hard not to miss. It's, it's, I know it's, I mean, certainly I was in the best shape of my life. And even for months afterwards, my legs were just like rocks, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I just, and you can't replicate that. I mean, you're essentially walking a marathon every day with 
a huge pack on your back. I used to say it's you like, it's like, it's like I used to like describe it to people and I'd be like, just imagine like hiking over mountains for 10 hours a day with a third grader on your back. Like that's what you're <laughs> doing, you know, like just to try to give people like some, you know, cause you can say 50 pounds, but it just, it doesn't register, you know, it's like, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's extremely physically demanding, uh, you know, just on like the cardiovascular level, but then like talk a little bit about the physical toil that, you know, it took on you to hike like this day in and day out, just like your feet. Like, oh, my God. oh yeah. I mean, well, that's the irony. You know, I was 26 and a lot of the the other, not all of them. I mean, there were some who were middle-aged, but, you know, several of the other hikers were also in their 20s. And what was really striking is we would all be, you know, limping around in the morning. Like you'd wake up and your joints would be all like arthritic and, you know, like, you know, stiff and you had to sort of ease into the day in a way that, um, really replicated what I imagine it would be like, you know, when I'm much older. And uh, there were just, uh, I mean, it's hard on your, it's hard on your body to do um, what what we did. And, you know, in addition to that, um, I also just really had trouble uh, with my, with my feet. You know, I never could really, I never broke in my boots, even though uh, it was more like my boots broke me. And, um, I lost six of my toenails by the journey's end because of they just would be beaten against the the end of my um, boot when I was descending, and then when I would be ascending, you know, they'd give they'd blister the backs of my heels, and I really suffered. Um, you know, my skin was rubbed raw in many places, not just on my feet, but like where my pack made contact with my skin, and um, I got these big calluses like on my hips that I described that I was very self conscious about when I you know, uh, got naked with some guy in Ashland <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and it was funny. I was at a, um, I was at a, well, actually after the rumpus, after, after the coming out party last week, somebody was asking me about that. And my husband was with me and I met my husband like nine days after I finished hiking the PCT and as it turns out. And, and we had sort of forgotten that, you know, one of, one of our first conversations before we had sex for the first time, as I said, to him, you know, my, I have these like weird calves areas like on my hips, so you know, don't be freaked out. Because <laughs> you know, people were saying, "Well, are they? Are you back to normal now?" And I am, you know. But I mean, so my body, you know, your, my body was like actually altered by the experience there for a while, and you know, it was incredibly painful. And I had to there again, you know, one of the things that I think was so important on that journey in terms of, you know my my healing or I guess my sense of spiritual transformation which they sound like really these grandiose things um you know in the ab- in the retrospect in the abstract but but really you know it is true that I my life does feel transformed by that trip and um I think a lot of it did have to do with with you know the physical difficulty taking the focus away from the emotional difficulty and that I had so much to contend with and survival was really about okay how how am I going to you know, like be able to deal with how much my feet hurt over these next 10 miles and then dealing with it, you know, and something comes of that, that kind of pushing oneself, um, in that way. I mean, that's why people run marathons and stuff, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I wonder back and I think back to when I was doing it and I was like, what, what was driving me? You know, what was driving you? I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I, like, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think I wanted a big experience you know, in kind of a grandiose, youthful way. Like I wanted to have, uh-huh. a, I wanted to have a big adventure before I started my adult life. But I think I was also reeling, you know, still reeling from this death of my friend. 
And, uh-huh. you know, and like suicide uh, grief in particular is, is confusing because you don't know why it happened exactly. You know, like, right. you know, with other kinds of death, it's like, oh, OK, so this happened and this happens. And you, it's a little bit more it doesn't make it easier to deal with, but it makes it uh, more understandable, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it also calls into question, like, I think it generated in me like a really serious philosophical argument about uh, the validity of that choice and w- what it meant to be alive and why live and just like really basic fundamental questions that I was trying to grapple with. Uh, I think that's it, you know, mm-hmm. but, but uh, I can't, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say with too much authority because I, I just kind of wanted to do it. I went out there and suddenly I was in it you know, <laughs> like, and then I just kept walking and uh, until I, and how do you think it, how do you, how did it, how did it, how did it change your life? I mean, looking back now and over this time, you know what? I think I impact think, did it have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's again, it's hard to say with specificity because it wasn't like you know I finished the hike and suddenly like everything was different for me. But right. I think that like in terms of my temperament or in terms of my worldview or you know however you want to phrase it, uh, I cannot imagine that that experience. You know, like you say, the physical challenge of it. Um, but also like the, the mental and emotional challenge of it w- didn't have some kind of purifying effect. Uh, mm-hmm. it made me, I think much more aware of my, uh, you know, it, I, I hate to start getting into like touchy feely, like, you know, psychobabble talk, but it made me much more aware of the voice in my head, uh, yeah. which is to say it made me more present. And I realized just like how much jabbering there was going on up there and like, you know, I don't know. I was isolated with it. So I think that that there was that effect. And uh, I'm trying to think of what else. It also made me more confident, you know, in my ability to withstand discomfort, you know, Mm -hmm. mental and otherwise. Like, I think that's like a big thing, too, is that like, you know, you realize that you can wake up and you can feel 110 years old and be in like terrible pain, you know, and your feet can be bleeding. And, mm-hmm. and then you can put your boots on and walk 12 miles with a pack on your back. You know, <laughs> I know. Yeah. So that's a Isn't good that lesson. interesting? It is. And, and it's, it's one of those things, too. When I finished the trail, I thought, okay, this is, you know, nobody will, can ever take this from me. You know, this is now in me. And um, it, it does inform me always. You know, I, I gave birth um, to both of my children naturally, not in a hospital, without any drugs or anything. My, my first child was 11 pounds. Holy shit. And my second child was 10. And those were the two most physically painful experiences of my life by far, especially my first child. Um, And, I mean, nothing comes close to it. But I will say, you know, like if I had to make a pain scale, a physical pain scale on my life, it would be, you know, the birth of my first child, the birth of my second child, hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And then everything else is like way back, you know, not even close to those three experiences. And and I I think that... um, in some ways, you know, the, the hike on the PCT gave me the, the confidence I needed to have in my body when I was, you know, doing that, the laboring naturally and stuff. It, I mean, it, it really actually, you know, gave me like, okay, you can be in physical pain and be okay. You know, that like you can see the other side of that. Right. And I think that there's something really, um, I don't know, something really you know, unique about being able to learn that, you know. So one thing I wanted to say, too, about what you said when you try to characterize like what you learned or how it changed you, you recoil at using that kind of self-helpy sort of touchy feely language. And I feel the same way. I, I'm always hesitant to say things like, 
you know, I was redeemed or it healed me. And, and people want to hear that. You know, people want you to say, because that's right. That's the classic story of, you know, you go into the wilderness after your friend commits suicide. And I go into the wilderness after my mother died and my life is spun out. And then we emerge um, these whole healed people who, you know, wept at a sunset or whatever. But, and the truth is, is that in some ways that, that we did, you know, in some ways that's true. And in other ways, it's so much more complicated than that. And it wasn't like you stepped off the trail, or, you know, an entirely different person than you were. But in a lot of ways, you had radically changed, you know, and as had I, you know. So it's, it's, it's funny that we don't have a real language for that. No. And in some ways, back, you know, back to the sugar thing is, you know, like sugar, I guess, you know, this Tiny Beautiful Things book that's coming out, I mean, it's, it's classified as self-help, which I'm like, really? I wrote a self-help book? And I think it's just because we don't see that kind of um, language as self-helpy. And, and, and it's like we've got to kind of take it back or something, you know, um, that we can talk in really complex terms and not simplistic terms about what it means to transform one's life. Right. That's exactly right. Like just the... Com- you know, it, it 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 almost it cries out for a complexity of language rather than a simplicity. You know, in some ways, right? Like, you know, so it's like a, it's a relief when somebody can articulate that, and I think that's what the I think that's what Wild does really well too, <laughs> is to try to articulate kind of the fullness of that experience, and you know, without pulling punches and without trying to kind of gif wrap it, um, right? You know, and and couch it as some sort of like really neat and tidy tale because you know in some ways i was fixed up after i got off the trail but in other ways like i was more raw than before you know what i'm saying it opens you up too you know like yeah uh, it opens wounds as much as it heals them or it or it at least like you know makes you aware of wounds that you have and you know kind of like eliminates your ability to hide from them um, i think so yeah which is a good thing you know there's it's just i guess the word i would use is purifying you know it it's 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 hard earned, but it it uh it has a purifying effect, I guess maybe it's like boiling yeah, I, like boiling something out of myself. <laughs> so I mean, I think in wild. I mean, it's funny you say this because I mean, I as I hear you talk, I, I understand how it is that you're like I did the same thing. You know, that you relate to it because I think in the book too, I, I use the term it was a scorching cure, and it was. I mean, I think about that 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 hike is like. You know, the way, you know, things are, are sterilized by fire, you know. And um, it was, I I just felt absolutely shattered and scorched by the trail. And sometimes that's what you need. I mean, don't they like, who are those, like, the penitents? I, I'm not, like, very up on religion. But, you know, the people who, like, whip themselves, you know, to uh, yeah. to show their their their, their faith, you know. I kind of I kind of <laughs> get that. I kind I think we maybe we had a little bit of that in us. You know? Yeah, and I use that line. I say I was a penitent to the trail, yeah. and um and and the thing is, and you were too. Anyone, anyone who hikes that far has to be because you do. Like it wasn't to me that was one of the most amazing things. We both said that we gained confidence, but man, I was so humbled. I was so humbled by the universe. Um, yeah really out there like okay i'm just this small little thing and not really you know the the world i mean there was something like the natural order of things you could see your place and it's not it's not really um you know at the top of the heap you're just one among many yeah well Um, i I just felt so i I felt so dreadfully lonely so lonely out there some (laughs) nights you know like that was really really difficult and i mean and just like when you would meet people strangers people you'd never Uh seen before in your life but who are out there hiking for an extended period of time 
just that immediate uh, intimacy. It's very odd, yes. but very kind of I think like uh, normal in that in that setting and in that situation. Because I had exact the exact kind of you know same kind of experiences where, you know, I, I would meet somebody. Like I remember one guy I met. We were hiking and we camped out one night in a you know in the same spot, and he was about my age and was getting ready to go to prison. And this was like his last weekend before he had to kind of report for his sentence. I don't know how it was, you know, exactly it worked, but we hiked like two or three days together. He told me everything. I told him everything. And then he went off to prison and I've never heard from him again. Do you know what I'm saying? Wow. <laughs> or like, no, I'm, and that's amazing. But, and I know I can see it exactly. I know. Yeah. I mean, it just, people just share. And like, I remember camping with a guy, you know, I was 21 at the time and he was probably in his fifties or early sixties and he, his name, because everybody out on, you know, on the trail has a trail name, which is, you know, because there's a big theme out there for people who are doing long-distance walking. Uh, it's about re, like, the reinvention of self, or there's a strong element of that for everybody. Like, nobody, mm -hmm. go, nobody goes out there just to, like, smell the flowers, you know? <laughs> like, I know. I know. You're, you're out there to transform, I think. And so there's, like, this tradition on the Appalachian Trail where you take on a trail name, which kind of seems yeah. hokey. You know, it, it is kind of hokey, but... No, but yeah, it, ha it happens. Everybody gets like a code name. And, you know, I was Wolfgang. You can't give yourself your name like someone else has to give it to you. Right. Uh, but I remember meeting this guy who was in his 50s or his 60s and his name was Kilgore Trout. And he was like this bearded, you know, salt and pepper beard and mustache, New Englander with like all the new gear, you know, really nice guy, like really nice guy, sort of um, pudgy. But, you know, I don't know, just a nice guy who was ready for a long hike. And, like, I camped with him for, like, two or three nights, and it turned out that his wife had just died. And, like, I learned that on the last night. Uh, oh. And he was out there, like, walking south because he was so – he was without her. And I was just like – I still think about him. I haven't heard from him, yeah. you know? like Right. So, no, know. I know. Yeah, that's really I, – I do feel that, you know, all the people I met on the trail, you know, they – they're powerfully, you know, in me still. And many, most of them I have had no contact with, you know, since then. Um, and I, I think that there, it is because, you know, I use the word kin and kindred to, to describe those people several times in the book because it feels like that. You know, they are there for that moment in your life, your closest kin. They're, they're the people who, are, who feel like your family, who understand what you're doing. You have to explain it to them. They, they're with you, you know. Mm -hmm. There's something so powerful about that, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, no, yeah. It's like it's an immediate, like, and it, it spanned age ranges. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think you're both so excited to be, you know, you just realize how nice it is to have company. And this just bullshit just falls away. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, you it know, does. it's like maybe you're experiencing the same trauma. <laughs> so you, uh, you know, you automatically connect with one another, you know, the trauma of being out in the wild by your, you know, on your own or whatever it is. But, um, you know, it's like, yeah, I think too, it's, it's a very, I mean, and maybe, I don't know if you had this experience. I'd be really curious to know, um, that what I was really struck by as a woman, you know, a young woman traveling, you know, hiking alone, is you know just my experience in the in the more urban world, the regular world, was that you know everywhere I went there was this kind of feeling of like sexual possibility or you know um, just just a lot of like sort of sexual dynamics going on between me and the the men I would encounter. And on the trail it was suddenly and I write about this a bit like how that sort of fell away and the men who I met and interacted with there was um, you know there might have been some flirtation or something but there was definitely a sense that like um, that that we were kind of um, I don't know that 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 it was like friends you know and you weren't gonna like 
be you know hitting on someone somebody very easily out there. Plus, everyone everyone stinks and everyone's got. Plus, everyone stinks. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's feet are everyone's feet are bleeding. It's just it's not it's not a place. I know. I mean, I, I like as I say in the in wild. It's like I, I couldn't even bring myself to masturbate. I was so like you know. <laughs> it's like, you're like I smell so bad and I'm so dirty. I won't even touch myself. I couldn't even touch myself. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's like you know, totally relatable. And uh, you know, I didn't meet. Of course, you were so, you know you were uh, an anomaly out there. It's not common for uh, young women to be out there, especially solo. I mean, at least at, right. least, at least in terms of ratio. So yeah, uh, I remember like looking at trail logs. You know, these journals that exist through you know along the trail where yeah. people kind of sign in. And whenever, you know, you'd see like a woman's name, you'd be like, oh, my God, there's like somebody out here, who, you know, who's not a guy. <laughs> we would get excited. Guys would get excited. Be like, what? You know, there, I remember there was a there was a hiker named Cinnamon Girl who was like, <laughs> she totally fascinated every guy I met. We're like, have you met her yet? Like, what does she look like? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this name was like so alluring. You know, none of us. Had, of course. Yeah, we were like, we've got to meet Cinnamon Girl. And like then it, I think I remember I want to say I met her and, and eventually and like she was not like super attractive, you know, in fact, like she was kind of the opposite of attractive. your, your, your fantasy. Says, no, I know when, well, when I met, so on the PCT, I, I do think this has changed since I was out there in 95, but it, it wasn't yet a common practice. I mean, I was aware that on the AT people had nicknames, but on the PCT, it wasn't yet a common practice. Most people just went by their names and every once in a while you'd, you know, find someone who had a name or someone would, you know, g- give you a name. Um, and, you know, I, I met these three guys who I'd heard, been hiking ahead of for most of the summer, and they were the three young bucks. And they were these three guys who had just, you know, gotten out of college, and um, they were just these wonderful, you know, men. And when they met me, they were so excited, and they told me just exactly what you just described. They They had been seen my name for weeks, you know, in the trail logs and stuff. And, and they'd been, you know, having all these conversations among themselves about like how old I was. How I might <laughs> you, were, you were a legend, I guarantee it, in their mind. <laughs> they had they, they sat around campfires and told stories about you. you know? <laughs> exactly. And they were so, they were so excited that I was 26, you know, because they were like, I mean, they were still younger than me. They're like 22, 23, but at least I was sort of within range, you know, and, sure. um, yeah, so they were they were very excited. Well, and you know too, like I just you know I'm a guy like I really love the company of women. You know, like sex aside, like I've always, I'm always the guy. I'm just comfortable talking to women. I grew up with sisters, and you know, right. I think that that may be like uh, that was something I learned out there. You know, like I really like it was mostly talking with guys, and it's fine. But like I really enjoy having that dynamic of talking to a woman. You know. Yeah, I yeah I I I miss women too. I mean, I did too. Yeah. Because I and every once in a while I would come upon a woman either on the trail or, you know, at one of my stops. And I just, you know, I longed to, to just have conversation with women. I was, um, when I was in graduate school at Syracuse, Dennis Johnson came um, as a visiting writer and I was talking to him and he was telling me about being, being on assignment in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, you know, throughout, throughout countries where, you know, there were places where uh, really women were kept kind of away from men and, or, you know, wearing, you know, things that covering their faces and whatnot. And he, and he talked about that, how the first time um, when he'd gone like a week or something without really seeing a woman's face, um, the first time he saw a woman's face, it just sort of took his breath away yeah. because he, he just missed that, that kind of 
just the feminine in his life, you know? Well, yeah, no, it's like, have you ever read that book by Chris Hedges called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning? No, I, I've heard it's a wonderful book. Yeah, it's like a great book, but it's, he says something similar because he's like a war correspondent and he's talking about being in, I want to say it was like Bosnia, you know, back when that was happening. And uh, it was like, you know, all day long he'd be witnessing these atrocities, you know, or he'd be like ducking from a firefight or, you know, driving through a neighborhood that had just gotten blown to bits or whatever. And then at night he was staying with this couple. And like the only thing that kept him sane was being around this married couple because they were like, you know, truly in love and like treated each other nicely. And like, you know what I'm saying? That was like his anchor. And like it was, yeah. like, it was like a drug. And like that makes sense to me, you know? Yeah, it makes sense to me too. Um, so like, I want to talk, I mean, with regard to wild and with regard to your time on the trail and like what set you out there, like, you know, one of the questions that I have for you is how did it help you process your grief? You know, cause you were what, four years removed from losing your mom yeah. when you went out mm -hmm. there and like, you know, I, I haven't lost my mother. Uh, so I don't know what that's like and I'm going to knock on wood. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I can only imagine, you know, uh, especially since she was, you know, essentially your, your sole parent. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so, you know, can you talk a little bit about like what that did, uh, not only to you, but to your family and then how like being out on the trail helped or, you know, did it help? Like what was the experience? Yeah. Like? Well, I think that, you know, when, when you experience, the death of someone who's, you know, really close to you, like such as, you know, my mother, you know, there's obviously the initial shock and pain and sorrow and grief and sadness. And, you know, that's, that has its own kind of intensity. And, uh, you know, once I moved beyond that, um, you know, the first several months where I was just like reeling, like my mother is dead. How can my mother be dead? My mother can't be dead. Um, you know, then, then it becomes real life, you know, and, I think that what was happening in those four years between the time that my mother died and, and that I hiked the trail, I was um, in some ways really trying to experiment with, you know, her death collided with this moment in my life. That's the moment, like, what what brought you out of the trail? I mean, you're like, you know, you graduate from high school and you're like, okay, or I mean, from college, and you're like, who am I going to be in the world? What kind of person am I going to be? How am I going to, um, you know, grow up? And And I think that I was having to do that completely under these new terms um, of being, you know, an orphan. And it was just so much to, for me to kind of uh, figure out that, you know, I just did all kinds of things. You know, after my mom died, I first tried to be my mom. I tried to be really the force that kept my family together, my siblings and my stepfather, you know, tried to, you know, go home and made, you know, like the Easter dinner or the Thanksgiving dinner or whatnot, you know, to try to say, okay, we can go on as before. But I didn't really have the power to sustain that. I, my mothers have a, a force field all their own, and, and, I, and I wasn't the master of that. And so my family really disintegrated. And then I was, you know, alone. And, and I think that what my mother's um, death brought up in me is not just the grief over her loss, but really to the grieving that I still had yet to do over the fact that I didn't have a, a biological father who was a good father to me. Um, and also having to really let go of a stepfather who I loved as a father and who, you know, was a very good man and who I still love, but who, you know, just really couldn't go on being essentially the father I needed him to be after my mom died. So there, it was suddenly like everything about the parents I had to um, confront. And my, my response to that was to self-destruct 
And so, you know, I met this punk rock dude who was like, let's use heroin. And I said, that's a great idea. And it was a great idea. It felt, <laughs> it felt like a great idea. And it really um, took away that pain. And it was fun. And it was cool. It was, you know, the summer of 1994. And, you know, we all wanted to be like, you know, the grunge kids in Seattle. And um, it's funny, in retrospect, I'm 43. I can look back and see, like, a huge part of that stuff was, you know, my, my grief aside, it was also like, oh, this is cool. Let's, let's shoot heroin. Um, and of course it has huge consequences because then it, it, it only sent me in kind of a spiral, you know? And so I think that, um, that I get out on the trail and I, and I've sort of left, you know, I have all this stuff in my, in my, you know, I've left this stuff behind and it's, that's the place where I really thought, okay, you know, and as I say, it's sugar a lot. What I'm always encouraging people to do as sugar is to accept the truths of their lives and learn how to live with them and learn how to thrive with them. And if, um, and, and if, I mean, those things that you can't change, you know, obviously change things you can change. But, you know, I couldn't change the fact that my mother was dead, that my biological father was a profound disappointment, and that's an understatement. And also that my stepfather, you know, wasn't going to love me the way I hoped he would love me. And those are, um, you know, it was so, they were so hard for me to accept. But on the trail, I, um, there was this little space created by that kind of silence and solitude that I could take a, a breath and take that in. And it was okay for a day, and then it was okay for a week, and it was okay for a month. And I was able to sort of step into another place that, again, it wasn't like I would never rage about it or cry about it or feel loss about it, but I could live with it, and I could live with it and thrive. Um, and I could live with it and do more than thrive. I could take that, those difficult lessons, and I could bring them forward into my life in a way that was creative or nurturing to others or um you know, I guess redemptive in my in my own life, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, no, and and, and I'm also uh, now my mind is going to like books, and you know, you talk about this uh, in Wild as well, but like how much you leaned on uh, books during this time. Like, were there particular uh, novels or <laughs> self help books or anything that you read during this time that were sort of like a lifeline for you? Yeah, I mean, I never really read self help books, but novels and books of poetry and collections of short stories, you know, those, those were just, I mean, I write the book, books are a big part of wild. And there's one book I took with me the whole way. And that was Adrian Rich's book of poems, the dream of a common language. And those were poems that I had read. A friend gave that book to me about a month after my mom died. And I'd read them over and over and over again. And, and there was, they're really the sacred text. So that, that book is like the sacred text of wild and of that time of my life. And, you know, I, I often would say these poems, you know, sort of lines to, through, would run through my head. And, you know, I, there, there are other, like like um, Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, which I found to be such a profound book, and which is a story of a mother's death and her family's grief. Um, and books, books were my company. They were my consolation. Um, and they always were before I started hiking. But on the trail, they were, they took on an even greater meaning. And that's why it was so... Um, difficult as you you know as you know reading the book i i would burn these books because i was as i read them i needed to lighten my pack and so i would burn the pages as i went along and that was um fascinating i i, I would never think of myself as a, a book burner but <laughs> I, I burned them out of love instead of hate you know books are always burned out of hate but except in this case wow 
So uh, did you know when you were out there, did you have a sense that, you know, did you ever say to yourself, I'm going to write about this one day? I didn't. You know, I, I, I really, well, first of all, it's so funny because I really, during that time, I mean, I guess I don't know. I mean, I mean maybe I'm misremembering this. Maybe you can help me uh, remember this. But, you know, we're in, in 1995, we're, we're, what memoirs, I mean, I guess that's the year that the Liars Club came out. Or, you know, I, I didn't even think in terms ever of writing a memoir. I thought really in terms of fiction. I was a fiction writer, and I knew that I had to write a book, you know, about my grief and my mother's death and stuff. But I never, I, I didn't think, okay, now I'm going to write about this hike. And it was really years later, um, very recently, in like 2008, um, that I started writing what became wild. I was writing an essay that just um, became lo- really long, and I realized this is a whole book. You know, and, and did, did you have enough source materials to, I mean, cause like, you know, the memories that you reconstruct are pretty intricate and I'm, you know, did you have, obviously you had journals. I had my journal. I kept this big, I carried this big sketchbook with me the whole way. That was my journal. And, you know, I took, I mean, I was alone. Like every night I would write pages and pages in my journal and record what happened that day. Um, and like some of the scenes in, in Wild, you know, some of the scenes are obviously reconstructed and from memory, and and um, they're 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 really just you know very subjective, you know, to the best of my my sort of memory scenes. But others, you know, the, when people say very particular and maybe weird things, um, I'm so glad I had my journals because they were those were conversations that you know right after I had them, I sat down and and wrote you know re, re reenacted that you know conversation on, on the pages of my journal. And um, I wouldn't have necessarily remembered them as specifically um, had I not done that. So that was that was, you know, really useful. So now, what about the uh, the book launch? Like, do you have like a, a tour plan and everything else? Like, you're going to be like, what are you going to be doing? I have a giant tour planned. Okay. I, I'm gonna I'm going all over the place. Where do you live, Fred? I'm in Los Angeles. All right. Well, I'm going to be in Los Angeles. In the first week of April, um, uh, Megan Dom is going to be interviewing me on stage at MoCA, um, and as part of the Zocalo Public Square event. And I'm going all over. I'm going to the uh, the tour starts um, really in Portland, where I live. Where I'm reading at Powell's on March 21st, and then going to Seattle and um, New York, and um, really um, several cities around. Um, you know, it's 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 about a, I'll be touring for about a month. Oh wow! And yeah, and uh, uh, there's going to be a big party in New York that um, it's like a wild, it's called a Wild Night with Sugar. So it's both a sort of sugar celebration and also a reading from Wild at Housing Works um, in New York on March 26th. And tickets went on; it's a ticketed event. Tickets went on sale uh, for that, and they sold out in about 30 hours. So holy shit! Yeah, you're like a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really exciting. It's it's a bunch of writers are reading excerpts from sugar uh columns and then I'm gonna read from Wild and so that will be fun. But yeah, and I'm doing um just various events and teaching workshops in a few places um around the this summer. So I mean this is this yeah. is this is relatively new experience for you. I mean this book is getting a push that uh most authors would dream of, it sounds like. Yeah, it's it's um it's completely ridiculous. I'm I'm really fortunate. I feel really lucky that um, my publisher is so behind the book. Um, and, you know, like any writer, what really actually matters is when people read the book, if they say, wow, I really liked your book. <laughs> so yeah. that's, you know, I mean, and that's that's been really amazing to have. You know, I'm getting emails from booksellers, you know, because they have advanced reading copies. 
um, just emails from booksellers saying, saying, you know, that they really enjoyed it or, or like you saying, I relate to you about this or that, you know, and it's really fun. I love to talk to other people who have gone on long hikes. Well, no, I'm sure you're going to meet a lot of them when you're out, uh, you know, on your tour, I would imagine they're going to show up and, you know, show you scars. <laughs> I know, I know, but I, I, you know, it's like I think people like you and I, like we, you know, we're like, okay, well, let's go just do this thing. But as you know, there are all these people out there who spent years, you know, like it's it's their it's their passion and their they they know everything about backpacking and they are gearheads and they're and I'm afraid that there's going to be this whole slew of people who are you know like going to be grumpy with me for being such a novice and going into the woods. <laughs> I was such a yeah. I mean, I. I can't even like that's the part of it that is like most comical to me is thinking like what was I thinking I had no idea what I was doing and my poor dog had his little pack on and uh, <laughs> I mean you know it was just like a comedy of errors especially at the beginning uh, where you're carrying you know like I think like about fifty percent of what I had in my pack I didn't really need and, yeah and I mean by the end of it I was just I mean you get a little bit maniacal about weight because you just want to reduce pack weight but I mean by the end of it I would just like dunk a bottle of water in like you know, a questionable body of water, throw two iodine pills in it and drink. You know, <laughs> I was, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it wasn't like reckless, but it was definitely a lot looser than I was when I started out where I was like, you know, purifying everything properly. Right. I got rid yeah, of, my, I got rid of my stove. Like I was just like eating peanut butter sandwiches. Like I didn't want to carry anything after a while, you know? Yeah, no, I know. It's, it's really, it's the weight is something else. I, I didn't listen to that very carefully before I, went out there and obviously suffered for it. But. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like you think you're, you know, you think you are only carrying what you what you need. You think that's what you're doing. But then you get out there and you actually do it for a few days and you start to reconsider. <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, what's so funny about that, too, is, there, and maybe, I mean, I don't know if we all do this or if I just do, but, you know, I always, you have these, like, ideas about things that, that are that are never really how it is, you know. And I think, oh, yeah, you know, I can I can just, wear a backpack and go hike, you know, all day. Like, that's fine. You know, that's not the, and then I think about all the times that, you know, for example, where I had to park the car like a block from my house and like carry two bags of groceries. And by the time I reach, you know, my house, I'm like, you know, screaming in pain from holding these two bags for a block. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, if that's hard, <laughs> like, what am I, you know, of course it's going to be difficult to carry a pack for, you know, miles and miles every day up and down mountains. But yeah. Well, you know, and la one last question uh, before I let you go, but I because I, this is something that I've actually dreamt about, and I remember dreaming about this when I was on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, but the Pacific Crest Trail is pack stock graded, meaning you can bring pack animals out there. That's what I remember yeah. reading. So yep. I always was like, you know what I'm going to do? Because I, I have had this thought too. Like uh, I, I, you know, I've as soon almost as soon as I finished the Appalachian Trail, I said to myself, I would love to try another long distance hike later in my life, like in my 50s or 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, God only knows if I'll be able to do it uh, because a lot of things have to kind of go go right in terms of having the time. And, and the other thing, too, is that my wife would never do this. <laughs> so, really? Yeah. No, not like not a big like uh, outdoor hiker. I don't think she would. I don't think she would participate. She might drive to like, you know, uh, she might drive to where the trail hits a highway and like give me a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've always thought like, you know, it'd be great to try this again later in life. And my dream would be, like, I had this vision of myself with a llama on the Pacific Coast. I was Coast just going to say that. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm going to, I know, me too. Because so much of what was hard is carrying that damn pack. Right. And, they, and, so and, and the, the llama. It's like 200 pounds they can carry, you know? 
Yeah, we'd load up the llama. Okay, well, Brad, I think we should we should map this out. Huh? Yeah. We go. <laughs> Wait, when we're in our 60s, we'll take the llama out, and we're going to walk this thing, and uh, okay. it'll, it'll be a grand adventure. But, we can uh, convince your wife. We can convince her. My <laughs> husband's totally down with it. He'll he'll totally go. We can persuade her. Yeah. But do you do you have kids? Uh, you have a kid, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I have a daughter. I have a daughter. She's uh, how old is your daughter? Eighteen months. Oh, yeah. See, my plan. I have a six-year-old and a seven-year-old, and my plan is to um, like our whole family is going to hike on the Pacific Crest Trail when they're like twelve and thirteen. Yeah. In that age, just before you know they've become like rebellious teenagers. Um, I'm thinking that I'm going to try to do a family long, long distance hike. Like a month, like something like that. Even like I was going to say, like like maybe the Washington section of the PCT, right. about 500 miles. So take you know take a month, maybe a little longer with the kids. I don't know, but um, I think it'd be. I mean, I think it'd be fun, and I'm into the llama idea. Yeah. Maybe the kids are more excited to go if we said, well, but, but a llama is coming too. <laughs> you're gonna have a, you're gonna have a pet llama for a month in the woods. What kid wouldn't love that? Come on. Well, there's a llama in Wild. I found a llama on the trail um, in Wild. A llama came running up to me, but I didn't get to keep it. Is this in Oregon? Because I'm just getting to Oregon. That's where I'm at. No, you. Remember, I ran ran into the hippies just before I leave California, and then after that, I meet that woman with the little boy, and she has a llama. I might not be there yet. I don't know. You're not there yet. Okay. I'm getting there. Okay. Well, I won't give the story away then. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, uh, it's been super fun talking to you and, uh, I'm really happy for you. This is, uh, this is all very exciting. And, uh, I thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Oh, Brad, it was so fun. Thank you so much. And, um, happy trails. All right. (laughs) Okay, folks, there you have it. That's Cheryl Strayed. Wild is her new memoir, and its pub date is March 20th, 2012. You can pre-order it right now, or if you hear this after the fact, you can go get it. It's available from Knopf. And uh, if you want to find Cheryl on the web, you can find her at CherylStrayed.com. She has a Facebook page, and her Twitter handle is at Cheryl Strayed. Uh, This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, you should email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Don't forget to check out the nervousbreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on Twitter at TNB Tweets. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Go visit killrockstars.com. And if you like the show, if you had a good experience, if it's doing positive things for you, please take a couple of minutes to go over to iTunes and rate and review it. Write something nice. It really does help the cause, and I would certainly appreciate it. So otherwise... Uh, Very fun talking with Cheryl about the wilderness. It generates stories, uh, that is for sure. It's sort of foolproof in that way, I think. You know, if you go outside and you spend an extended period of time out, you know, out of doors in the wilderness, you will wind up having uh, something to talk about. It's a guarantee. But, of course, to tell, uh, you know, stories as well as Cheryl tells them is another thing entirely. So, uh, I don't know. It calls to mind a lot of memories. Uh, Things pop up uh, from, uh, you know, my time back in the day. And I remember North Carolina, uh, one experience in North Carolina near the Tennessee border, meeting a guy about my age who had been hitchhiking and got picked up by a hillbilly and his wife. And when I say hillbilly, I mean a serious Tennessee hillbilly. And his wife was a mute and worked at like Arby's or something in some town. And so this hillbilly picks this guy up and, uh, this guy gets into the truck with some trepidation and the the mute wife is driving. And uh, I remember him telling me, you know, he was just trying to hitch to a motel. But then he's in this truck 
And this hillbilly guy is insisting that he come stay with them and enjoy some, some hospitality. So he goes along with it. He doesn't have much choice. And uh, he goes to this weird house in the, in the Tennessee hill country. And uh, they wind up getting drunk on moonshine. And then another guy comes over and he has just been released for, uh, from prison for, I believe, homicide. Something bad, something violent. And it turns out that this, uh, you know, this, as the night progresses, it turns out that this hillbilly is really into the Civil War and Civil War reenactment. And he has a trunk full of Confederate regalia. And he insisted on everybody putting this regalia on and then posing for photographs because he thought it would be funny. So that's what happened. It was a very strange night. And as, you know, as the moonshine uh, continued to be consumed, the guy who had just been released from prison uh, became increasingly unstable emotionally. But fortunately, he passed out uh, before anything truly bad could happen. You know, everyone sort of passed out, which I think was fortunate. So then the next day, uh, believe it or not, he, you know, he got up early and the mute wife gave uh, the young guy a ride back to the trailhead before she went to work at Arby's. And uh, he was lying there under a tree recovering when I met him. So that doesn't happen, you know, unless you're out there in the sticks, uh, kind of mixing it up in nature. So uh, good times, good stories. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I will be back again soon. In the meantime, please remember to take deep breaths. Please remember to take deep breaths in nature. (laughs) 